Now, purine and pyrimidine metabolism, we first look at purine metabolism, and these are the objectives for the lecture. Yeah, we'll, we'll just give a minute for everyone to come back. Now, in the meanwhile, why are we doing purine and pyrimidine metabolism in this module? Is because purines and pyrimidine nucleotides are components of nucleic acids. Yeah? So they are in the building blocks of nucleic acids of both DNA and RNA. Yeah? So that is what you have studied. So today we shall be looking at how are these building blocks synthesized? How are they formed and how are they degraded or what are they degraded into? Now if you try to look at what is the building block of an RNA, you, rem you remind yourself that it's a ribonucleotide versus the building block of a DNA is deoxyribonucleotides. And today we shall be looking at the biosynthesis of all of them. Now besides that, nucleotides have a function of like ATP is the energy currency of the cell. So that is again a nucleotide. They are component of coenzymes of different groups of coenzymes and tomorrow you will be looking at signal transduction where you will study more about cyclic AMP which is considered as a second messenger or an intracellular second messenger for the mechanism of action of various hormones cyclic AMP and cyclic GMP. Now this is what you've seen before what is a nucleoside versus a nucleotide what's the basic difference now nucleoside contains a sugar with the base, you have to note the linkage, it is beta N glycosidic linkage. So that is a nucleoside. A nucleotide, there are three forms of nucleotides. Ribonucleoside monophosphate, which contains one phosphate group. Diphosphate has two and triphosphate has three phosphate groups. Yeah? So when it contains a phosphate, we call it a nucleotide. Yeah? So that is what you have re reviewed before. The pyrimidines in RNA are cytosine and uracil. The DNA contains thymine and cytosine. The purines are similar in both DNA and RNA. Okay. Now when, when we look at the biosynthesis of the nucleotides, remember nucleotides are initially synthesized in the ribonucleotide form and later they are converted to the deoxyribonucleotide form. The basic difference between a ribose sugar and a deoxyribose sugar is at the second carbon atom. So initially in, in purine or pyrimidine biosynthesis, you find that the ribonucleotide is first synthesized and then you form the deoxyribonucleotide. Basically you are changing the sugar component of this nucleotide. Now if you compare purine and pyrimidine biosynthesis, the ribose sugar and the phosphate, that is the sugar and phosphate are donated by the same compound that's called, that's abbreviated as PRPP or phosphoribosyl pyrophosphate. So when, when, you, when, you look, when you identify this compound in purine or pyrimidine biosynthesis, remember it's donating the phosphate and the ribose component or the sugar component for the nucleotide. Now also remember, when there are many drugs that we shall be looking at today and most of these act as anti-cancer agents when you're talking about humans, uh, inhibition of human or eukaryotic purine or pyrimidine biosynthesis inhibitors and if they are prokaryotic purine and pyrimidine biosynthesis inhibitors they usually function as antimicrobial agents and that's the importance in medicine okay so that is what you have studied till now so today we'll we'll come to nucleotide metabolism 
we have divided it into purin and pyrimidine. Pyrimidine is not much, whereas purin is, is a vast thing. Under purin metabolism, we'll pay attention to the anti-cancer drugs. How many of you have heard of gout? Today, well, today all of you will be hearing about gout and what, what is it. Yeah? So at the end of today's lecture. So purin metabolism, we shall see it three, three different components of purin metabolism. The de novo synthesis of purine nucleotide. Yeah, so that's the first thing. The second one is the recycling or the salvage pathway of purines. And in this, we want you to pay attention to an important disorder. And finally, we look at purine degradation, which is considered or which is important for the mechanism of gout. Okay. So first, we begin with de novo synthesis of the purine nucleotide. Now, you've seen the purine nucleotide before. Remember, it, it's a nine-carbon, uh, oh, sorry, nine-membered ring. Now, each of these members, so there is a different donor for each of these members of the ring. So glutamine donates two nitrogen. Glycine donates two carbon and a nitrogen. Carbon dioxide gives one carbon. Aspartate, nitrogen. And two of the carbons are donated by a compound called as tetrahydrofolate or formal tetrahydrofolate. Now tetrahydrofolate is derived from folic acid which is a vitamin. Yeah? So tetrahydrofolate is derived from folic acid which is nothing but a vitamin. Now what happens during purine biosynthesis is initially the whole purine ring is going to be built on PRPP. So PRPP is the starting material and after that what happens is each nitrogen or carbon donor keeps adding the nitrogen or carbon atoms and then you have the building of the entire purine nucleotide. Okay? So that is how, that's the whole um, overview of purine biosynthesis. Now the numbers that you see in the ring here is the order in which the carbon or the nitrogen atoms are added to form the purine ring structure. Okay? We don't expect you to know the order, but we expect you to know which are the donors of the carbon and nitrogen atoms of the purine ring. Yeah? We don't expect you to know the exact sequence, but you, you just need to have a general idea of what are the donors of the carbon and nitrogen atoms. <coughs> um, and the donors are written here. Okay? So these are the donors of the carbon and nitrogen atoms. Now, purine biosynthesis, so we begin with ribose phosphate, which is the sugar and the phosphate. The ribose phosphate is, is donated from a pathway called as the pentose phosphate pathway, which, is <clears throat> which, which happens in many of the cells, especially the rapidly dividing cells, to form or to donate the pentose and the phosphate. The first step in purine biosynthesis is the formation of PRPP which is nothing but an activated form of ribose phosphate. So that's the first step. The enzyme is PRPP synthetase. And this is considered as one of the primary regulatory steps of purine biosynthesis. So PRPP synthetase to form phosphoribosyl pyrophosphate, abbreviated as PRPP. Now in the next step, what happens is the first N1 or the, one of the glutamine donates one of the nitrogen and it forms phosphoribosylamine. So what, what is happening is, basically, on ribose and phosphate, you start building the purine ring. The entire purine ring is, is, you start building the purine ring on ribose and 
phosphate. Now, this is the second important enzyme that you have to pay attention to. And one, this, this enzyme is, called, is, is sometimes called as the super important regulated enzyme. It's called the committed step of the pathway because once it forms phosphoribosylamine, once this reaction happens, then it, has, it is committed, phosphoribosylamine is committed for purine biosynthesis. So this is considered as like the super important regulated enzyme. So basically there are two important enzymes that you have to pay attention to. The synthetase, that is PRPP synthetase, which forms PRPP. The next one is phosphoribosyl amidotransferase. Now after that is a sequence of reactions. Remember in this, in this sequence of reactions what happens is the carbon and nitrogen atoms are donated and finally you have the formation of the parent purine nucleotide called as inosine monophosphate which contains, uh, which contains the less common um, purine base and that is hypoxanthine. So that this is the parent purine nucleotide, inosine monophosphate. Yeah. Now from inosine, inosine monophosphate is the common precursor for both ATP or AMP and GMP. Okay. Now there are many steps in between and as we saw in the previous slide, at each step there is donation of carbon and nitrogen atoms to finally build up the entire purine nucleotide. And inosine monophosphate is your first parent or your first purine nucleotide to be formed. Now, don't pay a lot of attention to the steps in between, but pay a lot of attention to the first two that we just discussed. Okay? In other words, know the overview. Okay? And the same thing has been explained on this slide. So once we form the parent purine nucleotide, inosine monophosphate, inosine monophosphate is converted by two reactions into adenosine monophosphate. Note that this step requires GTP. It requires energy in the form of GTP. So once you form adenosine monophosphate, next you form the diphosphate by adding a phosphate group and the triphosphate by adding the next phosphate group. And these are catalyzed by kinases. Okay? Now similarly, inosine monophosphate is used for the formation of guanosine monophosphate Note, interestingly, the formation of guanosine monophosphate requires ATP. Okay? Guanosine monophosphate is next converted into GDP and then triphosphate by addition of further phosphate groups. Okay? So what, what do you observe in this is when you have a little more of ATP, it facilitates the formation of GTP. And when you have more of GTP, it facilitates the formation of ATP. In other words, they ensure that the amount of purines, finally, adenine, is equal to the concentration of pyrimidines, so that you synthesize almost equal amounts of aden adenine or ATP and GTP, or the nucleotides of adenine and guanine. Okay? Now, one of the enzymes required in the conversion of IMP to GMP is important because it can be inhibited and that is by a drug called as mycophenolic acid. The specific enzyme there is IMP dehydrogenase, and that has been indicated on the next slide. Mycophenolic acid can be used to uh, inhibit purine biosynthesis at this step, the conversion of IMP to GMP. Okay? And that has been explained on the next slide. 
<clears throat> now next we look at how is purine biosynthesis regulated. Now there are two important enzymes. The first one is PRPP synthetase and the next one is the amylotransferase. So the first two reactions of the pathway are super important regulatory enzymes. Out of these two, amylotransferase is much more important, also called as the committed step of purine biosynthesis. So let's, let's move on to the next slide where we'll try to explain what is written on the previous slide. So you, you remember this, ribose to form PRPP. PRPP forms phosphoribosylamine and these are the two important enzymes. Now when there is enough of the purine nucleotides, AMP, GMP, ATP and GTP, they inhibit, it's called as feedback inhibition, they inhibit both of the regulatory enzymes. They inhibit the amidotransferase as well as the PRPP synthetase. That is just to make sure that we do not form too much of the purine nucleotides. Yeah? We do not form too much of the purine nucleotides. Now besides that, when you have high levels of PRPP in the cell, it acts as a feed-forward activator of the amidotransferase. In other words, when you have too much accumulation of PRPP, it is going to stimulate purine biosynthesis or formation of ATP and GTP. Now, this especially becomes important in disorders like HGPRT deficiency, where these children have accumulation of PRPP, and that is responsible for increased rates of purine biosynthesis in these children. Okay? Now, besides that, there is some patients with gout, some patients with gout who have high levels of uric acid. What happens is they have increased purine biosynthesis. And in these patients, if we observe, some of them have a defective PRPP synthetase. And PRPP synthetase in these people is not feedback inhibited by the end products. So there is, what happens is, they have an overactivity or overactive PRPP synthetase. Okay? So, so that happens in some patients with gout. So these are the two important regulated steps and pay attention to how is it regulated. Now at this time, we have completed purine biosynthesis. So what you have to remember is the regulated steps, the overview and in important inhibitors that we are going to look at. Yeah? So we have seen one of them till now, mycophenolic acid. Let's look at the other inhibitors. Now, if you, if you go back to the purine ring, remember two of the carbon atoms of the purine ring are donated by tetrahydrofolate or formal tetrahydrofolate. So anything that acts as a folate inhibitor is going to inhibit purine biosynthesis. In bacteria, folic acid is not Bacteria are special because they can synthesize folic acid. Folic acid can be synthesized in bacteria from a compound called as PABA, para-aminobenzoic acid. So that's how you form folic acid. So once the bacteria forms folic acid, it's converted into dihydrofolate or dihydrofolic acid, which is later reduced into tetrahydrofolic acid, and later it can be used for purine biosynthesis. Yeah? Now, Important inhibitors of folic acid synthesis is sulfur drugs, the sulfur drugs or the sulfonamides. They inhibit folate synthesis in bacteria. So bacterial folate synthesis is inhibited by the sulfur drugs. And therefore sulfur drugs can be used as antibacterial agents because the bacteria cannot proliferate. So what's going to happen now is if you give sulfur drugs to 
the bacteria or to the patient who has the infection, there is going to be less of tetrahydrofolate and therefore less of purine biosensors, less of replication or less of bacterial division. Now, there is, with the sulfur drugs, typically with the sulfur drugs, there is another inhibitor that is given and that is, it inhibits the conversion of dihydrofolate to tetrahydrofolate and that is called as the dihydrofolate reductase inhibitor and that is trimethoprim. So typically, sulfur drugs are combined with trimethoprim and they, they are used to inhibit bacterial purine biosynthesis or bacterial division. Yeah. Folic acid, as we just told before, folic acid is a vitamin for humans. That means we cannot synthesize folic acid. We need to obtain it from the diet. Now, folic acid, once you take it in the diet, it's going to be converted to dihydrofolic acid and then to tetrahydrofolate, which is used for purine biosynthesis. Now, dihydrofolate reductase inhibitors in humans can be used as anti-cancer agents. And a classical example is methotrexate. So methotrexate inhibits the dihydrofolate reductase in humans. Yeah? So note the difference. So methotrexate can be used to inhibit purine biosynthesis in humans, and finally it can be used as an anti-cancer drug. Okay. The same thing has been explained on the next two slides. So bacterial purine biosynthesis inhibitors are sulfur drugs, and bacterial dihydrofolate reductase inhibitor is trimethoprim. Okay. Methotrexate, on the other hand, it inhibits eukaryotic or human dihydrofolate reductase. Okay. And, and therefore, it can be used as an anti-cancer agent. Now, you must have noticed that people who take anti-cancer drugs, especially methotrexate, it affects the cell division in all cells. Yeah? All rapidly dividing cells are affected. So one of the side effects of methotrexate is that there is less of RBC formation, resulting in anemia. GI disturbance, typically diarrhea. And that's because the GI epithelium is rapidly dividing cell and it's not, it's not dividing enough because you are inhibiting the purine biosynthesis in all of these rapidly dividing cells. So other organs that are affected is the skin, the hair, so cell division in the hair, as well as the immune system. So these are some of the side effects of the anti-cancer drugs. So remember, they're not only inhibiting the division of the cancer cells, but also inhibiting division, cell division in the normal cells. Okay, especially the rapidly dividing cells. So for those of you who are very interested in learning the entire purine biosynthetic pathway, this is where this is what you are here. So but but what I want you all to pay attention to are the first two reactions. So that's PRPP synthetase, that's your amidotransferase, and that is your first parent purine nucleotide, inosin monophosphate. Yeah? Now note that the carbon and nitrogen atoms are added sequentially. Uh, just pay attention to, to the two carbon atoms that are donated by tetrahydrofolate. Yeah? That means purine biosynthesis essentially requires tetrahydrofolate. And if you inhibit tetrahydrofolate formation, you, by, uh, for example, in the bacteria or in humans, you can technically inhibit purine biosynthesis. Yeah? So are we good? We don't expect you to know all of this, pay attention to first two 
and that's your par parent purine. So the first slide that we use, the overview, is a good slide, I think, for you to review. Whereas if you want to know every detail there, please go and, and yeah, or if you have more time, or maybe in your break, yeah? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so at this time, we have formed adenosine or, or adenosine diphosphate, and you've also formed guanosine diphosphate. Now remember, they are in the ribonucleotide form. So at this time, we have formed the ribonucleotides. So the next step in purine biosynthesis will be the conversion of the ribonucleotides into the deoxyribonucleotides. If you want to use it for DNA synthesis, you need the deoxyribonucleotides. Yeah? The enzyme that is required for the conversion of ribonucleotides to the deoxyribonucleotides is called as ribonucleotide reductase, a super important enzyme. And we'll see what does it do on the next slide. Yeah? All of what is written on this slide, I'll be explaining, so you don't have to write much. Okay. So we have formed the, the pure nucleotide, and it's, remember, it is in the ribonucleotide form. So the example that is given here is, it can be any base. So remember, this is a purine base we're talking about. So ribonucleotide reductase converts the diphosphate form, the ribonucleoside diphosphate, to a deoxyribonucleoside diphosphate. So basically what's happening in this reaction is there is a change in the ribose sugar to the deoxyribose form. So that is what's happening in this, in this reaction. Now all the four purine bases, uh, sorry, the two purine bases and the pyrimidine. So the purine and the pyrimidine bases are converted by the same enzyme. So it's the same enzyme that converts the purine bases as well as, or the purine nucleotides and the pyrimidine nucleotides. And that's why they haven't mentioned the base. So it is, it's not specific for the base. All the purine and the pyrimidine nucleotides are converted to the deoxyribonucleosides or deoxyribonucleotides by the same enzyme. That is ribonucleotide reductase. So what's happening in this? So for now, we'll concentrate on the purine nucleotides. So the purine ribonucleotide, the ribose component is converted to deoxyribose. And you form, the little d indicates the deoxy. Yeah? So DADP and DGDP. Now for those of you who find where, where did we make ADP, so if you click on that link, you will go back to the slide that has the DADP. And that was you know, where IMP was converted into ADP as well as GDP. Okay? The enzyme catalyzing this reaction is ribonucleotide reductase. Now, it's interesting that it requires a protein coenzyme. Thioredoxin is a protein coenzyme, which is required for this reaction, and NADPH. Okay. Now, once you form the deoxyribonucleotides, so for now, we are looking at the purine deoxyribonucleotides. You can next form the the triphosphate forms, DATP and DGTP, which can be used as precursors or which can be used as nucleotides for DNA replication. So remember, DNA replication requires nucleotides. During the S phase of the cell cycle, they are provided by ribonucleotide reductase. Now, an inhibitor of ribonucleotide reductase is hydroxyurea, which is used as an anti-cancer agent. 
hydroxyurea, which inhibits the conversion or the formation of the deoxyribonucleotides and therefore inhibits DNA replication or inhibits cell division. So hydroxyurea is another compound which can be used as an anti-cancer agent. Okay. So try to answer this question. We, we saw a lot of drugs in this till now, so go back and try to make a table of these drugs. And we also have a table at the end, okay, at the, on the last slide. Do we have more answers? Now, if you have answered this question, I would like you all to identify what's the right answer for each of these one. So what, what step does each of them inhibit? That's a good exercise. Any more responses or we are done? Good. A few more? Okay, two more seconds and then we will... Okay, so... So my, mycophenolic acid inhibits synthesis of GMP from... What does sulfonamide do? Inhibits bacterial folate synthesis. Okay, bacterial folate synthesis. Methotrexate, dihydrofolate reductase inhibitors in in eukaryotes or in humans. Okay, in humans. So that's an anti-cancer agent. Hydroxyurea inhibits. The conversion of deoxyribonucleotides uh, to deoxyribonucleotides, in other words, ribonucleotide reductase inhibitor, hydroxyurea. Mycophenolic acid is the answer. Trimethoprim inhibits bacterial dihydrofolate reductase. Yeah? So trimethoprim inhibits bacterial dihydrofolate reductase. So are we okay? Yes? So at this time, we have, <clears throat> we have actually looked at, so we, we have completed purine biosynthesis. We have seen what are the donors of the carbon and nitrogen atoms, how is the ATP and GTP formed, and, and later we have seen how is the deoxyribonucleotides formed. Now the next step, now however, remember that the de novo synthesis of the purines that we just saw is, is very expensive in terms of energy. Yeah? So that means... Whenever you have free purine bases, you want to recycle them. And we are going to, the next thing that we are going to study in this lecture is how do we recycle? How do we recycle the free purine bases that, that are formed as a result of nucleic acid breakdown? Yeah? So that is the recycling pathway or the salvage pathway. Now, why does it exist? Is because it uses much less energy than the de novo synthesis. So if you want to conserve your energy, you need to use the salvage or the recycling pathway. Now it's estimated about 80% of the purine bases that are formed as a result of cellular turnover 
is going to be recycled or is going to be salvaged. Now this pathway is super important for the brain. Yeah? So when the salvage pathway is defective, it usually affects the brain. Yeah? And we are going to look at a disorder associated with the salvage pathway. Okay? So basically what happens in the salvage pathway is the free purine base is going to be converted into the nucleotide. So the free purine base is converted into the nucleotide. So PRPP is the donator or it do donates, it's the donor of the ribose and the phosphate. So a free purine base, which is formed as a result of nucleic acid breakdown within the cell, is going to be converted into a purine nucleotide. That means you're adding a ribose and a phosphate. In other words, PRPP, this, that super important guy, is donating the ribose and the phosphate. Now, there is a me mechanism by which you can convert adenine to adenosine monophosphate. The enzyme is APRT, or adenine phosphoribosyl transferase, APRT. Okay? Now, this is important, but what is more important is the next enzyme, HGPRT, hypoxanthine guanine phosphoribosyl transferase hypoxanthine guanine phosphoribosyl transfer. That's a super important enzyme and a super long enzyme too. Yeah. Now, what does this enzyme do? So basically, it's going to recycle two important purine bases, hypoxanthine and guanine. So hypoxanthine is converted into inosine monophosphate and guanine is going to be converted into guanosin monophosphate by this enzyme. The enzyme catalyzing both the reactions is the same. It is HGPRT, hypoxanthine guanine phosphoribosyl transferase. Yeah. Now this salvage pathway is very important for the brain. When there is complete deficiency of the HGPRT enzyme, it results in an X-linked disorder quite severe in, in the affected males and this is called as Lesch-Nihan syndrome. How many of you remember Lesch-Nihan syndrome? Yeah? So it's, it's because of deficiency of the salvage pathway of purines or because of deficiency of HGPRT. Now males are typically affected. It's an X-linked recessive disorder. Now remember, we, we said at the beginning that the salvage pathway was super important for the brain. So in children with Lesch-Nihan syndrome, typically they have high levels of uric acid. We'll be explaining why is that. They also have behavioral disturbances and that is seen as self-mutilation. They tend to bite their own fingers and lips and, and they have severe self-mutilation. And, and typically, most of them have intellectual disability. So that's because salvage pathway is super important for the brain. Now let's try to explain why do these children have very high levels of uric acid. Now what's happening in, in the salvage pathway is the free bases, hypoxanthine and guanine, are being converted, are being reused by the cell. So you're converting it into, some, into the monophosphate or into the nucleotide, and therefore they can be reused by the cell. But in patients who cannot reuse, who cannot salvage the free purine bases, what happens is the hypoxanthine and guanine are going to be degraded. They are going to be degraded. The end product of degradation of hypoxanthine and guanine is uric acid. 
So what happens in these patients is they are not reusing the basis and therefore there is too much formation of the end product or the degradation product that is uric acid. So that is one reason why to explain the high levels of uric acid in patients with HGPRT. So they are not recycling. So what's happening is it's going to waste. In other words, it's being degraded to form uric acid. Now the other explanation for patients with high or patients with Leshnihan, why do they have high amounts of uric acid, is PRPP is not used by the cell. PRPP is not used to recycle the basis. Therefore, if you look at the cell, you will find high levels of PRPP. Now, when you have high levels of PRPP, what will it stimulate? It will stimulate your amidotransferase. It will stimulate amidotransferase. In other words, the cell is going to keep forming more of purine nucleotides. So, the, so there is going to be too much formation of the purine nucleotides. So there are basically two reasons for hyperuricemia or high levels of uric acid. Increased breakdown or reduced salvage, reduced recycling. So hypoxanthine and guanine is not recycled. It's going to be broken down or degraded to uric acid. The next reason is high levels of PRPP accumulate and this is going to keep telling the cell or keep telling phosphoribosylamidotransferase to synthesize more of the purine nucleotides. So it's going to activate purine biosynthesis or de novo synthesis. Okay? We good? And this is super important, okay? Maybe put two stars. That's why I spent some time on it. Why, is th why do these patients have high levels of uric acid? So there are two causes, basically. One is increased synthesis because of high PRPP and increased degradation because it's not being recycled. The bases are not recycled. Yeah. Yes, a feed-forward activator. So if you go back to purine biosynthesis regulator, regulation, you notice that PRPP is a feed-forward activator of purine biosynthesis. So when you have too much of PRPP, it's telling the cell to make more and more of the purine nucleotides. Now, these are children with Leshnihan syndrome. So note that they tend to bite their lips and sometimes even the fingers. Okay? So self-mutilation is frequently observed. There is severe intellectual disability. And most of, the, most of the time, they're detected quite early in life. And there is not much treatment available for Leshnihan syndrome. Now, sometimes, if the mom has noticed this, then you may, you may find excretion of orange-colored crystals, and these represent the high levels of uric acid that's being excreted in the urine. Okay? And the diapers may contain orange crystals, which is nothing but urate crystals. Now, in this child, the serum uric acid level was about 9.9, .9, and the normal is about around 6 milligrams per deciliter. Now, if you, if you think about uric acid, it's said to be at almost saturation point in the blood. So anything above 6.5, it tends to precipitate. Okay? And that is responsible for the, the manifestations of hyperuricemia. So there is almost no activity or trace activity of this enzyme, HGPRT. Yeah? The longer the enzyme, the more important it is. Yeah? So that we have observed that. That's an important observation. 
Now, older children, most of them have self-mutilation and intellectual disability. And the high levels of uric acid, remember urate can precipitate in the joint cavity, resulting in symptoms of gout or arthritis. Okay? And sometimes even in the soft tissue. So note that he has been, you need to prevent them from self-mutilating themselves. So they may have to be tied up. Yeah? Otherwise they tend... They just chop off their fingers. They eat off their fingers. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's a serious disorder. Yeah. Yeah. It, it typically it present uh, it it precipitate. We are going to look at gout in in a short while. But what happens is when you have more than six point five milligrams per deciliter of uric acid, typically it tends to precipitate. Where do you know where? The joint cavity, arthritis. So. Patients with hyperuricemia typically present with arthritis, okay? And sometimes in the soft tissue. So are we okay? Yeah? So try to answer this question. So we just explained this now, and let's see whether you got the answer. So PRPP is activated by which enzyme? Any more responses, or we're good? Okay, so what... So which enzyme is activated by PRPP? It is your regulatory enzyme of purine biosynthesis. Now, if the question was, AGBRT deficiency results in accumulation of PRPP, and, and that is going to, in turn, activate amidotransferase. Okay? You want me to answer any question? Now, in, in children with Leshnihan syndrome, they have almost no activity of AGPRT. Therefore, PRPP accumulates, and the accumulated PRPP is going to activate the amidotransferase. Okay? So phosphoribosyl amidotransferase, the committed step of purine biosynthesis. Okay. So you have no questions? I'm surprised. You're tired? You have a question, okay. So when there is too much of PRPP, when in patients with AGPRT deficiency, there is too much of PRPP, and that will activate biosynthesis of purine nucleotides. Oh, no, the self-mutilation is, is completely different. That's because the salvage pathway is important for the brain. The explain, there is no explanation for self-mutilation, so we don't know. Yeah. Okay, so shall we move on then? Okay, so where, where, have, where are we in, in the metabolic pathway is... 
Purine metabolism, we have looked at purine nucleotide biosynthesis, we have identified some anti-cancer drugs, so, and you have to note about the regulation. The recycling pathway or the salvage pathway, we have talked about an important disorder, HGPRT deficiency or Leshnihan syndrome. And finally, we are going to look at the degradation of purines, which is important for two reasons. One is gout is because of too much formation of uric acid, which is the end product. And we shall be talking about SCID. You remember SCID? Severe combined immunodeficiency. Yeah. So th these are the two things that you have to pay attention to when you're thinking about purine degradation. Okay. Okay, we have time. Now, this, this is a case report of a patient with hyperuricemia and gout. Okay. So he is a 50-year-old man. He has come to the emergency department with a swollen big toe. So typically, the big toe is mainly affected. Most commonly affected is the big toe or the great toe. And males somehow have a higher predisposition for gout than females. Okay? So that is just observed. Now, so observation of the <laughs> big toe, you, you find that there is swelling. And it's very painful. It's super. Have you seen patients with gout? It's very painful. They can't put their feet on the ground. Yeah? So it's super painful. And, and they're not able to bear weight. So this is a cartoon of, for, for you to remember that the great toe is typically affected. But remember, it can affect any joint. Yeah? The, the, the joint that is most commonly, most frequently affected is the big toe. Now, how do you diagnose gout or how do you diagnose hyperuricemia is you can measure the serum uric acid levels. Now during an episode you would also, if you insert a needle into the, into the joint cavity and take out, aspirate the joint fluid, you will find these typical needle shaped crystals. The needle shaped crystals that are depic depicted here. So if you take the joint fluid from the joint cavity and look at it under the microscope, you will find the urate crystals, the urate crystals, which have precipitated because urate has a very low saturation within the body fluids and it is now super saturated. Yeah, it's just like you, you make a super saturated solution of uric acid. So what happens is the urate tends to precipitate out into the joint cavity and these urate crystals are inflaming the joint. So they are activating inflammatory response within the joint cavity, resulting in the severe pain and the redness that is seen in patients with hyperuricemia. Okay? And the crystals, if you look at the composition, it is monosodium, monosodium urate crystals. Yeah? So they are typically needle-shaped. That is diagnostic of gout, the monosodium urate crystals that are in the shape of a needle, needle-shaped crystals. Now, when gout tends to be present for a very long time, it, tends, it can precipitate in the soft tissue as well as in, in the various other joints of, of the body. And this is a patient with chronic gout. So what, you, what we saw previously was a patient with acute gout, but this is a patient with chronic gouty arthritis. And that is removal of the joint fluid. And you, if you look at the joint fluid under the microscope, you will find that these needle-shaped crystals, which are typical of gout. So what is uric acid? 
Now that is what we'll be learning in the next part of the lecture. So uric acid is basically the end product of purine nucleotide or purine base breakdown. So end product of purine nucleotide or purine bases are finally broken down to uric acid. And when I talk about the purines, it includes the major purines, adenine and guanine, and the minor purine, hypoxanthine. So all of the purine bases have a final common end product, and that is uric acid. Now, uric acid is normally excreted in the urine, but in the blood, it tends to have a low solubility. Yeah? It's present just below the saturation limit. So anything above 6.5 milligram per dl, it tends to precipitate, and it precipitates as monosodium urate crystals, and this is responsible for the arthritis, and the inflammatory responses will be activated. Okay? Sometimes monosodium urate can be deposited in the soft tissues, so sometimes like this, and these are called as tophi. And, and some patients, uric acid can precipitate in the renal cavity, yeah, in, in the bladder or in the ureter, resulting in renal stones and painful renal stones. So these are the areas where uric acid can be precipitated. Now remember that's because of its low solubility in plasma. Yeah. So shall we call it? Yeah, maybe come back in 10 minutes, okay? Because this is a big pathway and an important pathway, so come back in 10 minutes and we'll continue with the, with the lecture. Okay?